I'm Asat Zerkat. I'm Zoe Rosenberg. And you're listening to The Appeal, The Curved Podcast. One of the things about architects that I think everyone kind of holds as a stereotype is that all architects wear all black all the time. You know, it's like the wide-rimmed glasses and the the self-seriousness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's not that's not always the case. Mm, yeah, yeah, not always the case. And there's actually one person in particular who's coming to mind who bucks that tradition, and uh, that's Karim Rashid. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to be uh, talking to him today about his work um, and you know how he tries to avoid relying too heavily on tradition and classicism and history and architecture. So here in the studio to kick off The Curbed Appeal Season 2 is Karim Rashid. So, uh, Karim, thank you for coming in. Um, yeah, thank it's you. My, it's my pleasure. So really. excited to have it's you. My pleasure. You guys have been so supportive of my career in the last 10 years or so, so. So uh, let's start here. When you're at a cocktail party, how do you describe what you do? Well, first thing, I don't drink cocktails uh, because I don't like mix. So I just drink pure red wine or pure vodka. All right. <laughs> too. So I'm at a vodka, pure red wine party. No, I'm joking. Yeah. Um, how do I describe what I do? Yeah. Well, you know, if I say I'm a designer, which I try to say a lot because my breadth of work is broad, you know, and I, I also don't believe in specialization in a way. So... If I say designer, people think you're fashion immediately. It's a very interesting mm-hmm. that word became equated to fashion, not to, let's say, the built environment. Mm-hmm. But we, as you know, whether you're designing buildings or you're designing products or you're designing furniture, or you're designing, I don't know, peripherals, high-tech products, any of these things, you're a designer, right? So the hard, hard part is to, to have the definition. And years ago, and I remember this actually, I think it was Metropolis Magazine or something, did a survey. They asked on people on the street to name a hundred, yeah, sorry, name three designers. They asked like 500 people and everybody named fashion. Well, you know. yeah. So then I say industrial designer, but that's a little bit too industrial, right? A little bit too um, industry driven. Mm-hmm. Product design, people kind of get that. Or you could say furniture designer, but I wouldn't want to be pigeonholed as a furniture designer. So. At the end of the day, I say, um, I just design everything. That's all I say. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you think that happened, that people began to equate design with fashion? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, think, I think it probably happened because it's, uh, fashion is, has been a public subject for, you know, 150 years, mm. whereas product design or, or furniture design or industrial design has, has not been. Most people actually take for granted the built environment. There's all these things around us that we don't even think about until recently, actually, because now I think design is finally a public subject. Anyway. Mm-hmm. But for many years, it was like we had all these things in front of us, your drinking glass and your eyeglasses and the microphone in front of us and the table and this chair. And people just accepted all these things in our, in our world, you know, and never right. really kind of questioned all this commodity uh, until probably the last 20 years. Yeah, but so. to that end, I mean, uh, products and and cities and buildings and designs in that way have been around as long as fashion design. So it's kind of interesting how yeah. that... Well, in fact, you know, you could argue, let's say, a profession like architecture has been around for 10,000 years, more or less, and uh, and in its profound uh, state of making real, real, how can I say, impact on humanity and social life, it's probably the last three, 4,000 years. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and everybody's familiar with architecture. You know, they, they understand at least it's about a building. So it's, um, there's that in, that's that, that in between kind of ground, which is interesting of, of where design is still, I think, even though it is a public subject, is still kind of misunderstood a little bit. Let's take interior design as a good example of that. Mm. 
an interior, we, if you said you're an interior designer, people would understand that right away, right? Mm-hmm. You, you do but the interior design profession, is it, is it really, uh, are you really designing or is it kind of a, a, a decorative, how can I say, um, a kind of styling approach of that you're actually more of an interior decorator than you are an interior designer? Mm. Um, so, so to really understand what the word design is, which by the way, I, you know the etymology of the word, right? It's, it's from the industrial revolution. Oh, do tell us. And it's, uh, so it's about 170 years old and it means to program the sign or the program. So, so basically you sit down and you're, you're drafting out a whole bunch of criteria. You say, okay, this is my, you know, this is my problem solving. Let's say, it's, you know, I'm going to design a restaurant. So I've got to, you know, hold 150 people. I've got to have a, you know, 25% of the space probably dedicated to kitchen, et cetera. So you start planning, massing. Then you kind of get into more and more and more details, right? Down to the furniture and you say, okay, it's comfort. Is it, how are the acoustics? You know, can I read the, the menu? Start mm-hmm. developing all the other, let's say, sensorial parts of design. That's designing, right? But what a lot of people, when we walk into these projects, they're not really designing because they're thinking kind of style first. They're not really thinking about right. the human experience, about what we, we really do or how we really navigate through space, mm-hmm. or what we come in contact with, how we touch things, how we engage things. That's design. So design is really based on kind of contemporary criteria. It's not based on the past. It's not based on bringing in languages or, or um, uh, references from history. It's about now. Mm-hmm. If I design an injection molded plastic chair now, I'm going to use a smart polymer, mm-hmm. you know, probably even something that's biodegradable. Or I use a, a, a polymer that's derived from sugar cane instead of oil, which I just did a chair like that, instead of uh, depleting the earth soil, which mm-hmm. we've done. Right. So that's all contemporary. Then I say, okay, now I want the chair to stack or be lightweight or super comfortable or flex. So those are all new uh, contemporary criteria too. Yeah. So if you, at the end of the day, if you're doing really designing, you're working strictly with contemporary criteria, in turn, you're going to shape the future. Mm. Yeah. Right? Next, next five years of behavior, next 10 years of behavior, or, or et cetera. So it's nothing to do with history and borrowing from history at all. So there's a kind of a misconception because mm. in the fashion industry, design is that. Design is styling. It's all borrowed. It's a, you know, 95% of it is reiterations. Clothes are costumes. Of ex- it's costumes <laughs> yeah. of, ex- yeah. of existing typologies, existing archetypes, existing details that really are even, you could argue, completely irrelevant. I'm always kind of embarrassed. I think about this a lot. Like I barely wear a suit anymore. I barely wear anything that has to do with the history, I realize, because I don't want to, um, because it's superfluous ornamentation that I'm wearing. Mm-hmm. So I have lapels that don't do anything or buttons on the bottom of my jacket that used to be there to wipe your nose. The cavalry wouldn't wipe their nose. <laughs> right. You know this? And they move the yeah, buttons I have, around. I actually have heard this. Yeah. Yes. Wild. They move the buttons around. Now the buttons just stay there as some sort of what? Um, representation of man's suit jacket or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I can't handle all those things. I kind of try to do away with them and live in a contemporary Yeah. Um, existence. Would you say that that type of thinking is the through line for your your work? I mean, you work in at you know design at all scales, really. Metro system, signage, lighting. You've designed sex toys and sex shops. Um, what's you know? Would you say that that's the through line through all of those kind of various mediums? Yes. I, well, I say yes. The first first thing I would say is is that you know my point of entry into every project. First thing is to do something original. Because I don't, if I'm not going to, I don't understand what the contribution would be. I might as well just be derivative, right? We produce a lot of the same thing. There's a little too much, actually, um, of the same thing. So I need to do something really, and I need to do something original. Maybe it's for my own self-worth or being that I have some sort of meaning. That's the first part. But the second part, which is a challenge, and I'm just going to throw this out because I, I, I've been thinking a lot about this in the last couple of years. If you do something original that has some impact on society, 
you're one of 6.7 billion. No one else has ever done that before. If you really think about the, the noumenon, the beginning of an idea or a thought that can turn into making huge change, it's fantastic. That's number one. Number two is then you're one of the existence of humanity. So let's say we say, you know, since Homo sapiens were 20 or 10,000 years old, let's say, right? So you're one of how many then? Roughly one trillion. So you're mm. the first of one trillion people, which I always find overwhelming. Yeah. I always say if actually if there is heaven, it's really crowded, right? <laughs> <laughs> and hell even more so. Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> say that, yeah, yeah, really. So um, anyway, that's the first thought, originality. And second part is to sit down and now, not original for the sake of original, but the sake that I'm going to actually make some sort of change, mm. that I'm going to do something a little bit better, uh, a little bit more interesting, a little bit more human, a little bit more um, progressive, a little more technological. So it, then I start searching for that part of the, of the um, let's say, proposal, you know? Yeah. And the third part of it is to just kind of, I think if I do that, this is not actually, it's, it's a result of the first two, is then I end up trying to do something that speaks about the time in which we live. Because I think every product, every, every space, every building, if it's really done in the moment in which we existed, it tends to be not only uh, important for that time, but it marks a sense of history. And uh, so uh, we need to speak about the time we live in, I feel. Not, I don't need to speak about history or the past. I need to speak about now. So right. if I design a building now, I'm, I'm hoping to use you know, the latest technologies possible for the construction. I'm hoping to design space in a way that we actually live today, our kind of you know, human behavioral experiences, our social life, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. So I f- try to focus on, on what is today, really. Like, what is this world we live in today? And you know, yesterday, I don't know if you know, the digital age is basically 25 years old as of yesterday. Kind of like his birth, mm. birthday. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Yep. Yes. And, uh, and uh, which is funny because I thought it was 40. I don't know where I <laughs> But it's 25 years old. So I always say, you know, well, we live in the digital age, right? So there's a strange schism going on between how we actually really, who we are, our physical world, and what the digital age is. Meaning that we exist in two different worlds right now. Mm. Absolutely. And they're, mm-hmm. rel- and they're rel- relatively disparate also. Mm-hmm. Somehow still they're not really quite merging because it's almost like, oh, we have technology, it's fun, I can do Instagram, I can have a lot of friends, I can do Skype calls with my clients. And we almost separate that from the physical yeah. world. Then we turn around to the physical world and we regress. Yeah, But it's happening, right? Like Pokemon Go was such a phenomenon. And yeah. I think what people really didn't even realize they were they were gravitating toward was that sense of augmented reality and having this this like, you know, crazy little monster creature show up on the sidewalk beside them. There's something really intriguing about having the digital, you know, insert itself into the physical world and into people's kind of day to day realities. You know, it yeah. is happening and it's, it's going to happen regardless. Right. We're not, it's going to, you know, this is the master plan, I think, you know, it's going to happen. It's just who's, now. Who's, who's planning? Yeah. <laughs> well, I have, a, I have planning? a theory about that, but it's a little bit too <laughs> philosophical. I don't want to get into it. But I, I think that, uh, that, that what happened is, I think maybe it's out of some sort of paranoia or fear of technology that we resort, we regress when we get into our physical world. You know, I'll, g- I'll give you a couple of examples of this. Yeah, you yeah. Know? You know, so I, I go out to a restaurant out in Brooklyn that's, you know, it took about a month to get a reservation for, and it's all hyped and et cetera, et cetera. And, and I get there and I walk in and my first thought was, you know, sadly, it's, it looks like a copy of a copy of a French bistro. Like, mm-hmm. And I don't understand why there's this disconnect. Why are we trying to make some fake, almost kitsch stage 
to sit and eat when we're supposed to be eating very progressive cooking and interesting new cooking and new ideas, et cetera. So there's, there's the disconnect a little bit. And then I'm sitting in a chair that's like a copy of a copy of a copy of a Thonet chair from 1830. So I have to sit for two hours with like a wood rod sticking in my back, you know? So why do I have to sit in discomfort when I go, for example, when I go run, I'm a runner, I customize my Nikes with my pronation of my foot, et cetera, et cetera. So there's almost like two worlds going on. Mm-hmm. You know, one world is a fake kind of kitsch Trump oil, mm-hmm. and the other world is the real digital and real world we live in now, that we're, we're alive and existing in now. Mm. And I'm not sure it's because the digital age is so young, meaning it's, you know, it's just the beginning. Because right. if you think about it, Let's go back, you know, to when we were cavemen fifty thousand years ago or something. Is is it uh, the, the let's say the pioneers of of the world? We're kind of like pioneers now, and this is so new that we don't even really know how to handle it. Possibly, you know, we don't know we we're, the disconnections there because it's just the the beginning. Mm-hmm. And your work is so informed by what's happening right now and what's contemporary and and even what is going to happen. Um, I'm curious, how has technology changed the way you think about design and the way you push your designs forward? Mm. I think, I think uh, you know, I remember this very well. Okay, it's 1987 and I got a Mac 2 CI. Mm. And I was designing in the office. And we also got in the office, we got a PC because at that time for any design work, especially technical work, engineering, CAD, anything, it was only PC based. Yeah. But I had this 2 CI at home and... And I was just doing graphics on it, like all the rave flyer kids, you know. And uh, and I I remember just being so embracing of the idea that it's going to make huge change, not only in my personal process of how I design, but just in the world itself. You know, I was really kind of pretty optimistic about it. And I think it's because going back in the late 70s, one of my professors was Marshall McLuhan. I don't know if you know who mm-hmm. that is. Who wrote the, the name me- is familiar. The media yeah. is the message. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lot of discourse in our in our university about technology and about the fu- futurisms, et cetera, et cetera. So at that point, it was like, you know, floppy disks and we were writing code. <laughs> it was very weird. The future. Yeah. I was like, I was learning, I was learning Fortran and, yeah. and Cobalt 80. I don't even know if people even know what this is anymore. <laughs> I'm sure some listener out there is like, yeah, yes, like, oh, yes, Cobalt, Cobalt 80. 80. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and, and I, I uh, what I liked about it, I knew what I knew about it was quickly. The first thing that comes to mind is the fact that I could do many variations and change things very, very quickly versus drawing uh, technical drawings by hand. So if I was actually engineering a product, then it's amazing. You didn't if you made a mistake, you almost didn't want to. You'd have to almost redraw your whole drawing. So I knew that that was a great, amazing thing because I thought if we can do a lot of change, a lot of variation, you can kind of get to better and better and better solutions faster. First of all, and the world will become better because of it. You know, so it's almost like the, you know the the reluctance, or let's say the timeline, or what it would take to build a project. Um, in an analog world, prevented really good work, you could argue. Yeah. Like the Cathedral Duomo was, you know, it took mm. 300 years to build it, so it went through seven generations of architects. So the last architect's the only one who got to see the building built, which is kind of sad yeah. in a way. But also kind and, of amazing in its way, too. Amazing. You know, it's yeah. like he carried on the lineage of, you know, his family working on it or you know, his, his teachers who, who instructed oh, him you're, and you're, worked you're, on it. You're just romantic. I am. You, know, you can tell. Yes. But I mean, in, in a sense that also at the same time, imagine today yeah. you build a world like Frank Lloyd Wright, I don't know, built not, mm. didn't build that many buildings at the end of the day. I think if he was alive today, he would have built three times the amount. So just the communication itself, mm. the digital age, has changed, has afforded us to actually produce and uh, work a lot more mm. and better. 
That's number one. Number two is that I, I uh, really believe in, in a three-dimensional world. And I, I realized that the entire physical world we live in is 2D. It was actually designed in 2D. Hmm. So when you navigate through this world, you realize all these drawings, everything you see, the facades, everything, mm-hmm. it's all flat. You know, the grid of the floor, the acoustic tile on the ceiling, the, the, it goes on and on, the tiles, mm-hmm. the bricks, it's all 2D. Because we drew and, and saw the world in plan view, top view, side view section. Mm-hmm. But today, and it's been now 12 years, 13 years, we design everything in 3D. So we don't even think 2D anymore. Mm. And when you think 3D, you're actually really developing real human space and real, you know, you're really, it's an extension of us because we're, we're, you know, we're asymmetrical, we're 3D, we haven't, there's no straight lines exist in nature, which is very weird that we yeah. built this Cartesian world, this mm. grid. Mm. Um, and we built the grid because A, it was cheap to produce. Because it came from the Industrial Revolution, you could cut things in straight lines, right? right? Baseboards, extrude them, everything was like cheap. So the physical world we live in now is this, you know, to to derive from the 2D. Mm -hmm. So now with all this 3D that I have, I realize, well, in a way, if we keep designing in 3D, we're going to shape a 4D world. Because 2D gave us 3D, 3D should give us 4D. Mm. And 4D is, you know, the fourth dimension is time, which is human experience, which means I think we're going to just make a better and better, more experiential world. Let's let's hope. (laughs) I mean, really. So one thing we're going to try this season on uh, The Curved Appeal is to to divulge some secrets, (laughs) to talk about the, the things in our homes or the things in our cities that... You know, we we are fond of, even though they're not super stylish or... Uh, Shamefully fond of. <laughs> right, exactly. Shamefully fond of that make our lives better for whatever reason or that we just have an affinity for. Um, and because I'm already talking, I'm going to go ahead and declare my love for the three Edison bulbs I have in a chandelier in my apartment. You know, Discuss. I, for shame. For I'm shame. I'm just going to back away from the mic now. I mean, I think I have to play a little bit of devil's advocate. Like, what is wrong with that? Great question. Aren't they I don't not, think anything is wrong Aren't they it. not environmentally nice? I mean, okay, well, that's a good question. I, I don't think they universally problem. are. Uh, I mean, I think some. I think a lot of them is cer- certainly like real old ones, like ones that are actually antiques, like draw a mm. lot of energy and use a lot of power. So there's that. Yeah, and they also definitely hearken to a certain kind of Brooklyn stereotype. Yes, I live in Brooklyn. It's true. But I had them before I moved to Brooklyn, if that's any consolation. I'm getting skeptical facial expressions, so I don't think from, so. From where? Yeah, from where? question. A place in Manhattan. <laughs> on Canal Street. <laughs> I mean, the, the reason, one of the reasons that I really like them is because they provide a really nice, like, golden, dim light. And my chandelier is on a dimmer at home. And when we have people over, you don't want to necessarily, like, blast your, like, really intense you know, LED bulbs on guests at like a dinner party, yeah. you know? To be honest, I don't, I don't like any, once those kind of environmentally friendly bulbs came into style, I just like that like blinding white light. Oh yeah, I always felt like I was in a science lab. Yeah. So I, I also still have, I don't, I don't think they're Edison bulbs, but just like yellow bulbs that are, that are bad. I'm also <laughs> bad. <laughs> well, I mean, what, what is your thing though, Jeremiah? My thing, my dirty little design secret the thing that I love slash don't tell too many people about in my apartment is a poster of Westeros, the land of <laughs> oh Game of Thrones. God. But it's not its not just Westeros. It's arranged uh, like a subway map. And it says Westeros Transit System. Oh, my God. I love top. that. And it's so, 
it's like really simple. So you really can know where every little place in Westeros is in relation to all the other places. Like if you want to see where a pike is in relation to Dorne, it As shows a, you that. And it's like, it's the best. I have it framed. This is Game of Thrones, right? Yeah. Whew. As a Game of Thrones non-watcher, would this be helpful to me? Uh, I mean, it would only be helpful if you wanted to start watching. Yeah, just looking at the poster without consuming any of the books or show wouldn't do much. But yeah, if you if you want to start watching or reading, I highly recommend this poster, which I got on Etsy, and I could figure I could find out somewhere. You, Etsy, you yeah. don't say. <laughs> yeah, so some Etsy store. I forget the name of it. Brilliant. So, what is yours? Because now we've both bared our souls. Oh well, I think mine would have to be since the time I was in. High school, I've always had a chalkboard wall in my room or no. my apartment. <laughs> I have always, and this is, you know, this is me. I'm a failed Pinteraster, and I feel like chalkboard <laughs> walls are the most Pinteresty pin thing that 100. you could Here's have. the question. Do you use it? For, do you chalk on it? So I did chalk on it. This, oh, I, can we not use chalk as a verb, please? <laughs> Just trying to be efficient. This apartment I'm in now is the first one I haven't had one in, but um, I did. I would kind of, I would draw on it and then it would stay up there for months and months. Like when I was in college once, there was a larger than life-sized Hank Hill on the wall for like half a year. And then I would draw like little things around him You'd and it like was pictures? funny. Like little drawings, yeah, like That's little fun. little birds and Doodles. stuff, and giant yeah. Hank Hill. I feel like when you see chalkboard chalkboard walls in like listings or, you know, picture galleries of nice houses, they always have like a grocery list written on them, and it's like that's not, and that's not it's not a good use of that. It's like a really bad way to do your grocery list. It's a right. non Pinterest friendly use. Because then, yeah. what do you you take a picture of it and then like take the right. photo to the store? That's or you super like transcribe lame. it. <laughs> Fair. I mean. I have a confession to make. I mean, I already made one, but now I'm going to make a second one because you shared your, you know, chalkboard wall love. I also painted a chalkboard wall in my previous apartment, and it was a red chalkboard wall. What? I didn't even know they made those. Different. They come in all shades, really. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. Guys, your mouth is just I open. I also have a chalkboard wall. <laughs> Do you really? No, I don't. Oh, God, I got so excited for the potential solidarity. All right, y'all, if you have a dirty little design secret, tweet it at us at The Curbed Appeal because we want to know. All right, back to Karim. You mentioned Marshall McLuhan. Were there any other uh, professors or people that you know you worked with, maybe even outside of the design and architecture worlds, that really heavily influenced your work? I know Atori Sotsas is someone that you studied under. Yeah, I studied under um, Sotsas. I studied under Gitano Pesce, who lives here in New York. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know Gitano. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, <clears throat> and I studied with somebody named Rodolfo Benetto. I worked with him in Milano uh, years ago. It was fantastic. I don't know, there were a lot of people, a lot of very influ- influential people. I think what was, what was interesting about the, the, the time that I was brought up in and when I was educated, there was this ongoing... Um, kind of dialectic of 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 utopia of this idea that we will make the earth utopian, right? And if you look at a lot of people of my generation or older, like look at Zaha Hadid, for example, etc., we started to get we almost you could see the influences of this notion of creating a utopic world now. But now, what's happened is when we were, we were kind of steeped in it, then it was more of a an ideology. Today, it's it's becoming a a, a practical. How can I say it was be, it's becoming built? It's, mm. The ideologies are becoming real. Let's say so. Um, so there were a lot of influences back then. I remember I got to see I got to see Buckminster Fuller lecture. I was only wow. eighteen years old. Wow. 
he was like, I'm out of control. It was yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. People call me eccentric. They just see him. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and George Nelson. I saw Charles Eames. I saw all this, like I oh, managed, man. well, yeah, all these people. And I think somebody who had a, a big influence in my life, though, much later on in the, in the 90s was um, some ph- French philosophers like Jean Baudrillard. Mm-hmm. So I went to UCLA and a friend of mine was taking her, uh, classes there. So I sat in a lot of classes and loved his his. Uh, his philosophies and I, I engaged them a lot and then I started to teach them. And so there were a lot of, I, I realized later on that I needed to be less influenced by other, let's say designers or architects. And I needed to be influenced by philosophy or by um, other outside, as you were saying, kind of outside the profession hmm. to, to think on a broader level, not to be so material, mm-hmm. to think about style and to think about visualization, et cetera. And now, you know, when we look at the world now, and I was just thinking about this this morning as I posted on Instagram, I was thinking how we're looking at pictures that are this small. They're like, you know, right? They're yeah, they're tiny. Five mm-hmm. by four centimeters or something. You can't even zoom in. I don't know. Tell Instagram that one. Like, I don't get that. And uh, let alone changing the grid. I don't right. know what that's yeah. about. So we're talking about we're still living in this Cartesian world. Actually, I want to mention about the Cartesian world is I was designing a mobile phone. Mm-hmm. I could do anything I want because it was a startup two years ago. So I went crazy. I, went, <laughs> I, I built a phone that would have been really been radically different and changed this world. And I'm probably not the only one who thought of these directions, but the reality is, I mean, this is your hands are tied by you know the, the, the developers or the or the companies who can produce these goods, mm-hmm. right? You have to have a good client at the end of the day. You can be really talented, but without the client, you, you produce nothing, right? So anyway, I made this phone, and it was kind of a oval, almost oval shaped. It had this great technology I got from 3M where you could actually like put it against your hand, and if you held your hand straight up, it wouldn't f- slip out. Oh, wow. You know, it was really, really nice. And it was full of these like nice ideas. And the platform for our digital age is Android is a grid, and iOS is a grid. Mm. So to make an oval-shaped television, which I did 10 years ago for Samsung, which I never produced, you end up losing, you end up with this big border because in the middle you end up with a rectangle image. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can't have an oval image. I would love to have an oval image. Mm. So the image wouldn't be confined to a rectangle. And it's very mm. strange that we're confined to a rectangle because that's the way we oh, analog photography was. Right? right? We are trapped oh, yeah. in a frame. Yeah. And, and windows, st- I think just having windows be rectangular and square makes you see the world through in that shape. Right. Yeah. Picture frames, that's true. all those exactly. things. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and actually that's how one point perspective was, mm-hmm. was discovered mm-hmm. by building a frame as, mm-hmm. at a distance from you. There's an original thought, by the way. I mean, if he didn't like depict and be able to uh, manifest or draw one point perspective, I don't know where we would be today. And imagine that it took up to the 14th century for somebody mm-hmm. to do that. I mean, that's original thought, right? That's a brilliant, yeah. brilliant. Um, Anyway, so there's, uh, anyway, sometimes, I don't know, I'm a little off topic, but this is like we're kind of trapped in this world of 2D, you know, mm-hmm. right? Trapped in a grid. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm designing kitchens and I'm designing refrigerators for LG and I'm designing stovetops and I'm designing uh, credit cards and all these things I'm designing, more or less I'm forced into a grid again. But I don't believe in the grid. You know, I, I believe, and in fact, it's, 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 it's confining. It's, it's, and I feel if we, as human beings, for us to be kind of spiritually free, physically free, physiologically free, you need to break out of this grid. So the technology, as you mentioned, I think is going to afford us to do exactly that with time. I mean, you've touched on it a bit, but, <clears throat> you know, what, just the future of design, where this is all going. I mean, you're talking about the fourth dimension. You're talking about bringing kind of an, exper- an experiential uh, 
viewpoint yeah, to, to well, how well, people are thinking What we have about to understand design. about design is, let's say tomorrow you design a building as an example is, you know, still there's a tendency that we're steeped in this idea of facade. You know, we look at things in floor plans. Like I design a lot of hotels. And what a lot, a lot of, so, and I spend my life in hotels. Like mm-hmm. I, it's amazing how many hotels I've stayed at around the world. And I, I see that I can imagine you look at the plan and say, okay, well, where's the bed go? Oh, the bed goes here because the window's over there. And then I need, oh, but you know, because it's a three star or four star, it has to have a desk. So I put a desk or it has to have a chair. I put a chair in the corner and these, these kind of really banal approaches to, you know, just planning space. I think it's all over mm-hmm. all that stuff because what happens is, and it's amazing because we have the technology, like for example, VR technology, which we're not really using. When I walk into the room of the hotel, the first thing I see is I see the bed sticking out. And I see the, and it's not like we designed it from that perspective of the experience of when you walk in, when you walk in, where you put, how you put your luggage down, what you touch, you know, how the lights go on, what's the sound like, all those things. The sensorial aspects of design, which is is all the other dimensions, are not really being considered one, and we're not really still looking at a lot of this in a, a dimensional space. We're still really looking at it in the analog way of planning of plans. Mm-hmm. So we're really talking about subverting tropes in design with your work. And um, one of the things that your work is really well known for is its use of color. So I'm wondering, um, where did your love of color come from? And in what ways do you use color to push design forward? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm kind of getting in trouble with color. Because, <laughs> because do tell. <laughs> What's my, going my on? My epitaph, the first thing it's going to be is like pink or color or something like that. Yeah. Like people in the world, it's, it's amazing how I think, because I design everything and so many things, is how different my form, sensibility, you know, each project is what it is. They're very different from one another. But, you know, you get pigeonholed a little bit, right? So I'm kind of pigeonholed in like being the, the blobism guy or the color <laughs> or something. And the color thing, the reason it's working against me is because so many people, especially developers, are so afraid of me because of color. You know, so I told my staff the other day, we made the entire portfolio of 160 built projects in black and white. <laughs> so people can look at that because right. then they can understand what I'm trying to do, the real space. Now, color has a, a huge impact of also what I'm trying to do, too, because color for me is an extension of the digital age in which we live. We can s- visualize our eyes something like 16,000, 17,000 different colors. Our computer is telling us we have 1.4 million, which I don't understand then how that works. But if we have 1.4 million. So the technology itself is affording us to have this kaleidoscopal kind of colorful world and on screen and and even in our small products now color is being really embraced right in fact it's gotten to the point where like for example you look at a picture of a mobile phone it's so banal of an object sitting on a big billboard so what do they do they have to have some beautiful purple Mm -hmm. iridescent colors on the screen (laughs) to give it some life right right? absolutely they don't know what else to do you know that's right and And it works those billboards are always like should i get an mm -hmm. iphone 6s yeah and even fashion you know you see the in general the majority of the fashion is monochromatic but then they show context it's really colorful Mm -hmm. because you know anyway so we're seduced by color we love color it's an amazing it's amazing how emotionally we 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 feel we can change emotions so quickly you know you can be sitting in an auditorium I'm on stage I look at the audience right and the whole auditorium is just kind of brown and everything and if those two walls on the two sides were I don't know light yellow you know or something else it, immediately when you walk into the 
the, the, the forum to watch the lecture, you'd almost start to feel different, you know, and we know this for years. There's been psychologists who have worked on color and, and psychology mm -hmm. and color and emotion for, for years and years and years. But I don't know why, and I use a lot of color and, and I love color, love it. And I, I, I'm, and everybody's afraid of it. You know, so that's how it's kind of working against me in a way. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. In fact, we just got a, I just got a really nice project. I'm doing a, a, a building, a condominium in Aventura. And, uh, and the client said to me, quote, came in, <laughs> loves my work, way to work with me. But he said, but you have to make me a promise on this project. No color. And I, you know what I said to him? Have said, you met me? I said, <laughs> no, and I said, no, I said, I said, thank you, actually. Mm. Because most people just run away. They wouldn't even think about using me because he saw deeper than just the colors, I'd mm. say. Mm -hmm. And in turn, it was a good project for me because now when you see the drawings, the renderings and the feeling, it's all monochromatic and it's beautiful. And it shows that I'm more than capable of this kind of work. You know, I don't, I don't, it's not a... Um, but there's there's a there's there's definitely a fear, and what my where my love of color came from is I don't know. I think it's somehow deeply innate in me or something because I remember in university, my teachers were they were all this Teutonic kind of German Dutch education Bauhaus education, mm -hmm. and all our models we made had to be gray, black, or white. And I remember my and my father's abstract painter, and I would go home and visit. My father would have these huge canvas with about three hundred different colors on it. And I remember thinking that, oh, my dad's work's a little garish. You know, like I was like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a little too much color. Like I, I didn't really understand what he was doing. Right. So although I saw him paint and paint, on one hand it's maybe behavioral that I started to pick it up, but there was something coming out of him because as he got older and older, his work got more and more and more and more colorful. And it actually even started out as a painter. He was actually quite, uh, it, it, was, it was much more subdued, his color. Color, color work, anyway. Mm. So, and it, you know, for me, it's directly linked to the to, to the digital age again. Because when you make imagery on the computer, it's beautiful. The colors that for phosphorescence and the glowing and the mm -hmm. gradations and all these things, and you see it happening now. I mean, what, the good thing is, it's it's in industrial design, it got accepted, meaning you can buy yourself a professional Nikon in hot pink, for example, right? Imagine you're spending fifteen hundred euro and you have a have a hot pink camera. Mm -hmm. I mean, this stuff was unheard of. 30 years ago. In fact, when I was doing industrial design in the 80s, I remember proposing, you know, baby blues and pinks to companies. I did one of the first laptops in the world for this, for um, uh, Fujitsu, I think it was. And uh, there were a few out on the market, very few. And uh, it was a big machine, you know, it was something like 27 pounds. Wasn't oh really, a, wasn't really a laptop. It's a crusher. At that time, they called it a portable, portable computer. They called <laughs> okay. it. Yeah, and uh, and you know, and and uh, I made some grooves. On. I, it wasn't a lot I could do because at the end of the day, with these products as industrial design, you're almost just putting a, a, a casing mm. on technology, right? And I put these lines and everything. But then I proposed it in baby blue. I remember this in light pink, in light gray. They just went ballistic. They they could not believe these. I mean, they thought it was like, <laughs> how dare you take something so serious, right? Some piece of technology, you know, mm. and make it in those colors. I finally convinced them at the end we made it in really dark gray because at that time everything was uh, beigey, really weird. Mm, oh, it looked right. like plastic mm -hmm. that melted in the sun color, you know. Like, <laughs> And they, made it in, <laughs> and they made it in dark gray, but right. but I remember proposing. I was really really interested in doing this and making. Now today, it exists. Right? Yeah, you the future looks headphones in any colors, yeah. and then it moved a little bit further into furniture. Now, furniture you buy yourself a nice orange upholstered chair, or you know, pink sofa, or right. Mm -hmm. Okay, it moved to furniture a little bit. 
but that's about as far as it's going, you know? Mm-hmm. And then you see the odd proposal. I just saw one yesterday. I don't know where it was. Beautiful building. I think in Rotterdam or somewhere where it's all crazy, beautiful colors. The entire building was. And I'm really, I'm shocked when I see this kind of thing. You know, you can feel it starting to happen, mm-hmm. but you need somebody very daring as a developer to, to believe yeah, to fund or that. trust you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know about the controversy. You guys wrote about the controversy of Indeed my, little, we did. my little colored facade building that was <laughs> yeah. pink and cyan and everybody flipped out. <laughs> And that is so funny because at the end of the day, what is just color? I don't know how 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 it's so uh, how people can be so upset about that, you know? Fair point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, anyway, I I made it white the building, and at least it was accepted in white because the entire street's kind of you know brown bricks. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> right. So that'll be a, a bit of a uh, difference on the streetscape yeah. at least. Well, that's a good segue to our thunder round, which is like a lightning round, but a little slower, maybe a little bit more considered. <laughs> but uh, what is your favorite color? If you had to choose just one. Just one. If I had to choose just one and really live with it all the time, I guess it's white. Mm. It's white? You're wearing all white in the studio right yes. now. Well, your shoes are pink and white yeah. and black. I, I, the reason I say white is because it's free, it's liberating, you know, I, I feel, yeah, I feel like I can accomplish anything wearing white. I don't know, it's strange, mm. no, it's a, but yeah, white. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So if you could build in any material, regardless of its structural viability, <laughs> what would you choose? You mean build, like build a building? Hmm. What, build what? I anything. think anything. Anything. A seat. A piece of technology. I think it would be a polymer. I think it would have to be a, some sort of plastic. Mm. You know, there's 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 a, a polymer that I really like, which is is liquid crystal polymer, right? So if I could build, I would love to build a, an entire building that's lightweight and polymer and plastic like that, but it's entirely live and like a video. So mm. it's acting like your screen. <laughs> Something of that nature would be nice. Yeah. I mean, I think I live, I, I, I just want to add to that. I, I think that we're still a little bit, also in the analog world, we're still steeped in this idea of permanence. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe in permanence whatsoever. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, it's, especially when it comes to like things that humans are building, like yeah. permanence is really just a hope. A hope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think if we, we could make a lighter world, a more flexible, um, more sustainable world, if we kind of relinquish that idea you said biodegradable chair earlier, and my mind was just yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know, there's this technology I found seven years ago in uh, Brazil. It's a company that produces from sugarcane a polymer. Great structural integrity has everything. You look at it, you think it's you know, um, you think it's a polycarbonate chair, but it's sugar driven, which mm-hmm. is beautiful, and it's biodegradable. In fact, a lot of my projects around the world have been using this new technology from Germany, which is a flooring that I print wild prints on it. You know, I did a 500-room hotel in in Berlin like this, and I can do anything I want on it, digitally print, right? And at the same time, the panels completely are are biodegradable. Mm. So you can do all these really lightweight, interesting, you know, sensual, provocative, digitally driven things in this world that are kind of disposable and and we are disposable (laughs) meaning you know nothing is really permanent very true Mm. like the other day someone said to me about about classic the word classic which i cannot stand that word (laughs) by the way just cannot a client said oh but make us you know we're doing a dining table tying company so make it more classic and i said i said to them 
what is classic? What does that mean? They said, well, something, you know, it'll sell more. And I said, well, then you're not going to do anything original. You know, if you want me to do classic, I can make you a round table or a rectangle table. And it's been done thousands of times. I mean, you're, you're up against a competition of tens of thousands of people who are selling the exact same things. You want to do something original, you forget about classic. Do something about now, something that differentiates you and differentiates your product or your company mm-hmm. or your brand. I would say design is the only brand differentiator left. Yeah. If 10 companies in the world make televisions and all the monitors are coming from the same factory, the, the, you know, the liquid crystal, then what's left? It's design. It's design of the brand, design of the minimal frame that's around it. It's design of how it works, how it plugs in, what the interface is. That's, the, that's all that's left, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not a fan of the word classic. <laughs> no. <laughs> what, what is your favorite word? Uh, that's a good one. I, 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 people joke with me all the time that I use the word phenomena too much. <laughs> so maybe that's it. You know, a, a phenomenological uh, moment is when you feel really alive. And I love that feeling. I love that feeling if I walk into a space or into a lobby or into a, see a building or, or see an object or touch something or, or even, you know, and I'm talking about the material world or even just taste a certain taste I haven't tasted or smell something. That's that, that phenomena is beautiful because you really realize you're present you're here Mm. at this moment in time i don't think i'm the only romantic in this room (laughs) (laughs) something tells me Uh, yeah Uh, well anyway i have a i have a romantic radar i guess so (laughs) i know others was there anything that you wanted to add at Um, the end to that i i i uh, i would like to add something yes i think that we should really uh Upgrade the city of New York. <laughs> Who doesn't oh goodness, think that's, that. an entire, falling, that's an entire podcast episode? <laughs> I guess. I guess what I want to say is, when I look at the world, and 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 you and you know this well as journalists, uh, if you see the built environment, it's pretty bad in general. You know, when you really now look at the opportunity we have with technology the way things have changed, you start to realize that the world is really kind of physically behind and, and backward and in a sense almost you could argue primitive in certain ways. And I would love to see the world in general kind of move quicker and move forward a little more and become more part of the time in which we live. And I'm going to give you just a very two simple examples of that. One is I would just like to navigate the whole world with my fingerprint. And it's weird to me, puzzling to me, that I can spend 12 years at Equinox using my finger to go into my gym, and yet I can't use my fingerprint instead of a passport. And a passport is, rubber stamps are 800-year-old technology. It's so stupid that we run around. <laughs> no, and also frightening. I'm running around this passport in every city in the world thinking, if I lose it, if I lose it, if I lose it, right? Then money, coins, you know. The last thing, by the way, I was in Australia two weeks ago. Every time I handed them a bill, I got a coins that were about, you know, <laughs> three inches in diameter. <laughs> like seriously backward stuff. This stuff is so backward. And we've had the last 30 years an opportunity to keep changing it. Somehow we're still not quite changing it. So I would love to get rid of all these things, peripherals, health cards, ID, driver's license, bills, mail, magazines. Mm. paper, all this stuff. I get no mail at all anymore except bad, disgusting magazines from Frontage. I don't know why on earth they send me that. 
you know, or or whatever restoration hardware. Why thick catalogs that are being printed, mm. killing the environment, destroying mm-hmm. the earth. This stuff is destroying the earth. We don't need it. And when I talked about the master plan earlier, I'll just throw this out. Sure, it's my theory. Digital age came about to dematerialize the world in order for us to to be saved. It's a survival. And that's what humanity's existed on is surviving for the last 10,000 years. So the digital zeros and ones are immaterial, very low energy, hardly need any energy, create far more greater human experiences without physicality. And where we need physicality, let's make it better. If we need a table to eat on, make the table better. But we don't need all the other stuff. It's all should be gone. Books. Company asked me the other day to design a bookshelf. I refuse. <laughs> there are going to be a lot you don't of need shelves. There are going to be a lot of people out there who disagree with you on this. Yeah, well, let yeah. them disagree because if they really step back and be objective about human existence and not subjective, mm. forget about that. You like to touch paper? Screw that. Step back and say, look what we're doing to the earth. Mm-hmm. And isn't it more interesting and in how much more time do you spend on your digital screen than you do touch paper anyway? An average American right now is spending seven hours a day looking at screens. So where does paper come into this? Nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's no room for nostalgia with you? No. Yeah. No nostalgia. <laughs> well, on that okay. note, I think that's a great end. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank really, you really I, for I, coming I, in. I appreciate you guys inviting me. Thank yeah, you. And, uh, and I love Curbed, just to add to that. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah, always good to hear. That was the first episode of the second season of The Curbed Appeal. If you like what you just heard, you can subscribe on iTunes. And if you're listening on a mobile device, you can check out the podcast section on the Spotify app. And don't forget to rate us five stars. Yes. 